All right, psychology nerds, and welcome to Why We Get Mad, a special series brought to you by the Psychology and Stuff podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, host of Why We Get Mad, and I am here without my usual co-host, Georgina, but with a former student, Sammy Elderfeeser. How's it going, Sammy? Hello, it's going great. I'm so happy to be here. I am really, really happy to have you here. So this is really fun. And you you look to be like you are at the library. Are you at the library right yes, now? Yes, I am in the library at my former middle school. <laughs> nice. Wait, why are you at your former middle school? I am substitute teaching here, actually. Oh, mm-hmm. that is awesome. Very, very cool. So because, you know, maybe it's just me. I don't hang out at my former middle school that okay it's not like I hang out here this is my place of work for the record (laughs) no I get that now but out of context it felt a little odd so fair um, enough (laughs) this is so I want to take a moment to tell people a little bit about uh about the show uh and what we are doing so um we have a series of what I anticipate is going to be six episodes Uh, talking about different aspects of anger, studying anger from a a variety of different perspectives. And I'm interviewing uh, experts uh, in in different areas from both from UW-Green Bay's campus, but also elsewhere. So um, today we're going to talk about we've got um, a psychologist. Actually, most of my guests are not going to be psychologists. They're coming uh, to us from different areas. But today we've got a psychologist from UW-Green Bay talking about anger and gender. Um, But moving forward, we're going to talk to historians, we're going to talk to artists, we're going to talk to counseling psychologists, uh, legal experts, uh, and uh, philosophers. So all sorts of stuff. Very wide range of professions there. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited about it. I, um, you know, I've done a few of the interviews already, fascinating conversations, um, a lot of really, really good people. So I'm curious, before we get to our guest today, have you ever taken a course from Dr. Chris Smith? I have. I had Dr. Smith for social psychology. Excellent. And I, um, so I have not taken a course from Dr. Chris Smith. I have have seen her teach and I know her to be um, a really, really great engaging teacher. Um, Super, super smart. Um, super thoughtful. I know students uh, really appreciate her, and I absolutely appreciated talking to her. Um, so, should we get to it? Yes, let's do it. All right. So, my guest today is a social psychologist with an expertise in women's and gender studies here at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. She earned her doctorate from the University of Pittsburgh and currently researches and teaches about gender, sex, and personality. She is the former chair of our Women's and Gender Studies program and the winner of the Christine Ladd Franklin Award from the Association for Women in Psychology. It's Dr. Christine Smith. All right. Hey, Chris, thank you so much for being here. How have you been? Good. Thanks for uh, for inviting me. Um, give me a break from grading. So that's always, <laughs> that's. Um, I'd like to thank you for not having for me not to, needing to find an excuse to not grade. You yes, provided yes. one for me. So we, we I nicely yes. set up these meetings right in the middle of uh, finals week, which was <laughs> yeah. a really cruel thing that I did to all of my oh. guests. But yeah. 
Not at all. And, you know, <laughs> on a podcast, one of the things um, you miss on a podcast, by the way, is, you know, um, it, it's good to hear people's voices, but you always don't get always to see, get to see them. And so one of the things I think your listeners are missing is, you know, just, just how pretty you are, Ryan, you know, you're, you're really pretty when you smile and, and you really ought to smile more. Uh, thank you so much for that, Chris. I think we might be Welcome. starting out with some, some podcast trolling here, right? Where you're <laughs> trying to get a rise out of me immediately. That's right. As you and I have talked about before, that's one of those things mm -hmm. that yeah. uh, tends to make uh, women angry. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're telling them what to do with their face, which is, <laughs> and what to do with the emotions. And you know, women get this so often. And when I talk about it, this is like one of their number one things because we expect women to be nice and smiling and happy all the time. And so anger, in fact, that term, uh, the newer terms people are coming up with resting bitch face, Right. is usually applied to women as if your face should always be uh, non-resting and non-bitchy so that you're pleasant to look at. You know, the irony here is that I don't know anyone who has a worse resting bitch face than I do. Uh, when, it, when it comes to, people tell me all the time that I look like I'm scowling at them when I'm uh, in meetings or walking down the hallway. Um, Yet, yet no one has ever actually called called it resting bitch face when they've talked to me about it. So that's interesting. As one person told me, that is, I have resting bitch face, but I also have white male privilege, so it gets called something else. Right. It gets called you. You know, you're thinking deeply and seriously about important things. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, that's kind of what I want to get into today. Because so we should say for for our listeners, um, I. When I, when I set this up, what I really said is, I think in the email, I actually said, you're an expert on the psychology of women and you are a feminist and you're a social uh, psychologist. So yes. you, uh, you, you know emotion research. Um, <laughs> let's get together and talk about women's anger. Um, yeah. And that was kind of it as far as uh, you know, a prompt. So I'm curious, you know, in the weeks since then, what have you been thinking about? What, do you, yeah. what jumps out at you based on that information? When I was thinking about it, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, what is anger for? So we think of anger as sort of a negative emotion. So that in an often uncontrollable emotion as well, that it's when we're angry, we're not thinking about other kinds of things it can ultimately lead to aggression and it's a powerful emotion. And I think that's one of the reasons why we don't like women to be aggressive and to be angry. Whereas we don't like men to be seen as sad or weak. So we, uh, and I've, of course I think about all the kinds of aggression that we're dealing with as a culture, things like, you know, now, we're afraid to go to a casino. Now we're afraid to go to a grocery store. All those things because of male anger and aggression. And yet women who also have a, hopefully a full range of emotions. And so we need to be able to let both women and men experience the full range of emotions. Women get angry about stuff too. Why do they not go and then engage in mass shootings? Mm -hmm. So 
how either how they manifest their anger or what they do with it or don't do with it really is important because that's real social implications. Women are angry, just as men are angry. I mean, anger often means that we don't feel we're being treated right. And it's not necessarily a bad emotion. And we, if we don't give people the opportunity to experience the full range of emotions, then we end up with some really big problems. Absolutely. And, you know, that's what, in some ways, what is sort of given rise to this, to wanting to talk about this with you is that, you know, for a long time, my argument, my sort of rationale for, for, or my way of talking about anger was to really focus on the positives and the reason, all the good reasons why we experience anger. But at various times, I've been, I think, correctly and rightly called out by marginalized groups, including women, for not recognizing the full consequences that, or I, what I should say is that the consequences of anger expressions differ widely based on who is expressing the emotion. And then we've got plenty of research that points to how men are rewarded for their angry expressions and how women and other marginalized groups are punished for their angry expressions. Yeah. So we don't have social movements without anger. People need to feel angry. They need to think that things are unjust, but I mean, but who's engaging in social movements? Yeah, I mean, we could look, go back to the, I don't know, the civil, not the civil war. Let's go back to the other war before that, the war with the British, right? We're being treated unjustly. We want a revolution. That's awesome. We've been treated unjustly. We want a revolution. One of us is going to kneel bad. Um, and so we don't like anger by oppressed groups because it implies that, we they they might do something they might do something like want more rights and so yeah anger is often used against oppressed groups so if i mean if you think about um, around african americans you know well they riot well even when they do things like kneel that it still becomes problematic in general we like our oppressed groups to be kind of smiling and happy and entertaining when yeah, and ultimately, you know, one of the things I would argue is that anger then becomes a, a tool of oppression uh, mm -hmm. because it becomes a way of discounting arguments, um, you know, and so instead of focusing on the issue, it's why are you rioting or why are you being disrespectful to our troops or why, you know, and so um, th there's a a tendency to focus on that emotional expression instead of focusing on the issue that is that the injustice essentially that has led to the anger in the first place right you often get well you know you're angry but you're going about it wrong well please tell us what's the right way to go about it because you know if it's wrong tell us the right way to get the change but <laughs> right. but it, there isn't a right way because uh the right way is to change things or these things aren't happening to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. How do you think, so you and I recently had some ex exchanges over email about masculinity. I reached out yeah. to you after some things that I'd seen on social media and I wanted to get, hear your thoughts. How do you think masculinity plays a role in all of this? What, or what role does it play? 
to you? I think it plays a huge role. And because when we look at the traditional idea of masculinity, it includes ideas about independence, assertiveness, aggression. And those, again, are all kind of powerful. Um, they're known as agentic traits. And so men get those, um, are allowed, or full, get that range of emotions that they're allowed to experience. But it also includes things like not being um, weak and not expressing emotions, unless it's anger, apparently, or not expressing weak emotions. And so for people who often embrace a tradi traditional masculinity, this in increases the likelihood that anger is going to be emotion that they express when, especially when they feel other things. I might be sad, but sadness is weak, so it comes out as anger. The other element around masculinity in, you know, in patriarchy is this idea of entitlement, that I am in a privileged group, that I'm entitled to have certain kinds of things. And when I don't have them, the things I've been promised, you know, pretty girls is a really good example, because when we look at some of the um, we look at some of the mass shootings, we look at some of the um, incels, things like that, that I'm entitled to certain things as a man. I'm entitled to have a sense of power. I'm entitled to good jobs. I'm entitled to pretty ladies. And when I don't get those, then, you know, I could internalize it. And that's often what women do. There's something wrong with me. But again, it's as part of masculinity, I don't get that opportunity to express it that way. So it comes out as anger. How dare you not want to go out with me? How, why? I mean, I should have the nicest car and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not able to achieve that that particular level of, you know, income to be able to do that. And so it's very much wrapped up in masculinity, but masculinity doesn't necessarily have to be negative. And, you know, there's some good elements, just this anger can't, sometimes life is unfair. And if anger can spur us to action, it can be good. But if life is unfair because you feel entitled to certain kinds of things because you happen to be born with a penis, then and you don't get those things. That, I mean, that's the problem with patriarchy. You know, it's not a perfect system. It doesn't really, it benefits some people a lot. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the people kind of get the crumbs, but they see the people who get the rewards at, because they and identify with them because they're like them and then becomes really come really angry when it doesn't happen i mean look at things like the proud boys <laughs> these are good examples why aren't we getting it because of the jews or because of the people of color and so a masculinity that's wrapped up in privilege and power and entitlement anger is often really problematic mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's been a lot of research exploring that link between entitlement and mm -hmm. and anger and essentially the sense of I deserve things and then how easily that connects to when I don't get those things, I feel I've been unfairly treated um, yeah. or I feel that I have not. I mean, this is one of the, one of the things I saw and, and really had to de deal with on my, uh, as far as how I think about anger 
after the insurrection on January 6th was right. how do you help people recognize when they've truly been wronged versus when they just think they've been wronged? And yeah. there's a big difference there. There's a big difference between right. actually experiencing an injustice and thinking you've experienced an injustice. And, yeah. and, I, and I would argue that on the sixth, we had the latter. Um, you know, and, and um, the flip side of all this though, especially as we're talking about politics, the thing that's been really um, interesting to me is that right around the sixth um, was the, uh, the election of, in fact, I think it was the day before, was the election of the, the runoff election in Georgia. And, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting is I think that we could use that as an example of women's anger driving something really positive um, right. in that Abrams experienced what I would consider an, an unjust election uh, yeah. two or four years ago. I'm not remembering my details right now and rallied behind that with an extraordinary movement to register voters across Georgia. And, you know, and to me, that feels like an example of anger used for good uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in a lot of ways. Now, obviously other people don't agree that it was used for good. Um, <laughs> people who wanna suppress votes, but I'm not concerned about them. Um, but to me, that, that is a, it's a really interesting juxtaposition there, right? We've got, we've got the anger on the sixth versus I think a tempered, reasonable, angry response um, the day before that. Could you imagine if when Stacey Abrams lost and it seemed like it was a very problematic um, election, her followers did not storm the capital of Georgia. Right. <laughs> Could you imagine if they did? Right. Right. And so think about what happened on January 6th for to put a, a white man to replace a different white man um, in a position of power. And a lot of people still think that that was appropriate, but Stacey Abrams also didn't have the same kind of tools or the, not, not tools, but the same kind of opportunities or, you know, as a black woman engaging in rioting and storming a capital there first of all if her followers did that there would have been multiple deaths right it would not have um resulted the same kind of way so what you had at the capitol was you know a bunch of overwhelmingly white uh mostly male although two of the people who died were women interestingly mm -hmm. um storm because they didn't have a, a billionaire continue to be president I mean, ultimate idea of entitlement, whereas in Georgia, you have a black woman who lost an election that had was incredibly actually problematic where they had documented evidence, unlike for the January 6th riot. So some people can express it. And you know, a lot of people said after June, um, January 6th that if those had been black folks who had done this, um, they, you know, there again would have been mass casualties. So who gets to storm a Capitol and who doesn't? So right. Stacey Abrams also knew as a black woman, and I mean, the stereotype of the angry black woman is a trope that we see everywhere, that she couldn't go about it in certain kinds of ways. So 
when we think about how we can express our anger into um, there are socially appropriate ways, but there, um, and some ways are just really not available to some groups of folks. Well, and, and it seems to me that the socially appropriate way for a woman or other marginalized person to express their anger is to somehow convince the world that they're not really angry. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, it, it's really mm -hmm. to deny it. It's really to, um, to essentially uh, to hide it and then just work on making change. And yeah. that that is, that becomes, and so it's, I mean, again, talk about just a, a deeply, deeply unfair way to exist uh, or to be forced to exist. This, this idea that, well, no, you, we want you to care, but we want you to care in the right way. And if you ever care in the wrong way, uh, we're going to punish you for it in some way. If Stacey Abrams had gone on and on about her losing that election in the same way Donald Trump did, <laughs> I don't think she'd have that as many followers. And she really would have been dismissed by the media, by lots of folks. She just would not have gotten the, the press. Yep. It, it would have, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about that, but I think it would have very much changed the narrative behind what she was trying to do. Um, and, yeah. and it would have made it about something different. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a, a really good point. Um, there is, you know, there's some interesting research showing that when um, when folks talk about, let's say, being discriminated against racism, even when there's evidence that it's the case, mm -hmm. white folks don't like it. You know, <laughs> so right. okay, it was racist. It's obviously racist, but you still need to shut up about it and stop complaining. <laughs> this is so. I, I shared with the, this with you uh, over email that I've had a. Um, I've done a number of TikTok videos on, on two particular issues. One is masculinity and anger and aggression, where I've just, and these are me sharing research findings, right? So it's, mm -hmm. th these aren't my own ideas. I cite the, the, the people in them. I basically describe what the study was and what it meant. Um, the other is explore, has been exploring um, how women and, uh, uh, black men and women are perceived um, when they express anger um, and, you know, essentially what we're talking about right now. Um, and in both cases, the vitriol that I have received, um, and, and you, you are more familiar <laughs> with this than I am, and yes. I know that, but it's, I mean, it's very clear that people do not want to hear this. Uh, some, excuse me, some people do not want to hear this. And that's extraordinarily evident. You know, the interesting thing about that too is that male anger is also probably one of the reasons why men are dying, live, don't live as long as women. And when we see most violence is perpetrated by men. So, that anger is not always doing them good. In fact, it can be highly detrimental, but people want to maintain that power that they see behind that anger or that they, they associate with anger. And so there's this real fear that somehow we're gonna emasculate men, right? That we're, we're gonna make them like a horror of all horrors, women, what? 
which is interesting because lots of so who are apparently not angry women are very angry they often seethe under the underneath but people are very much invested in ideas of separate gender roles and part of that male role is that all that privilege that comes with it which includes anger right yeah and you know it's worth noting too not that i want to take the focus off of the anger piece but you know we've one of the, the harms of masculinity is that it doesn't allow men to express the full range of emotion mm -hmm. either. I mean, the, the number right. of times as a, as a child in particular, that, that is still with me, that I felt like I couldn't cry, that I couldn't be scared of something, you know, that it, and I don't, again, I'm not trying to make myself sound like I experienced any kind of injustice or anything like that. That's not what I mean. So I, I get that this pales in comparison to other plights, but it's it's not good for us, I guess is what I'm getting at. You know, it's not good for us to have to suppress those emotions either. Um, it's not, so it's, it's bad all around, yet people are trying so hard to cling to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. And I mean, I get people are clinging to the privilege aspects of it, right. not recognizing the, the negative mm -hmm. aspects to it. But yeah, I mean, it's really sad that women can't express their anger when they're truly angry. Or what happens in some women is they really kind of try to be really nice and, they, and then it builds up and it just explodes. Right. Um, but, and it's also really problematic that boys don't have the opportunities to be scared and sad and tender. What do we all lose as a society when people don't have those opportunities? Because, and for men, a lot of it is somehow associated with being gay, that if I let my son be soft and tender and have a baby doll, that he's going to be gay. So uh, when we look at gender, it's very much wrapped up with, um, with heterosexuality as well. Um, like the worst thing you could have is a gay son. No, but most men would become fathers. And we want fathers to be able to be nurturant with their children. But if you look, even if you look at the traditional father role or sort of ideal, you know, dad goes out and work, mom stays at home. And then what happens when you do something bad, the kids do something bad, wait till your father gets home. And then father it comes home and, and, you know, I don't know, spanks you or does whatever. So that one role in fatherhood, but you get provider, and disciplinarian, so provider and aggression. And so lots of people, both men and women, have experienced fathers. Who, that's pretty much it. I don't see him very often. He comes home and he's mad. Right, right, right. Yep. yep. <laughs> and that's where, you know, this is what drives so much of it, too, is the, the, the modeling and the learning. And this is a thing that I, I've been trying to, I've been thinking about a lot lately is how do you model healthy emotional expressions yeah. for, for kids? And you're right. I mean, what you just described is the dynamic for so many. I mean, when I was a kid, it was oftentimes I, I wasn't encouraged to talk to my dad for a little while after he got home from work, that he needed some yeah. space to sort of decompress. And, you know, and, and so you're right. I mean, that this is, 
very little interaction overall. And, um, and some of it, and a lot of it was rooted in sort of anger or, or this distance, you know? And meanwhile, moms may be home all day. She might, um, you know, she's dealing with kids all day who can be very frustrating. Um, she may not be getting her needs met. You know, she might have to ask him for money all and the, and, you know, doing overwhelming amounts of housework, childcare, and all those things, she is supposed to then greet him at the door um, with her emotional labor of making everything happy and fun. So when he comes home, he can start feeling good. So she doesn't get to be angry either. Right. So yeah, right. she is the, women are expected to do the emotional labor for the family. And that is put everybody and keep everyone in a good mood. Right. So as we finish up here, I want to, um, what's the final word? What do you think is really important for listeners to know or hear about what we've talked about today or, mm -hmm. or other stuff? Well, I, I like that you focus on anger is a good thing because I think it can be. We don't have social movements without righteous, righteous anger. But I think that idea of what's righteous and recognizing too the, the full humanity of all of us you know, women are afraid to walk down the street at night and we're angry. I want to be able to go do what I want. Um, they, you know, whenever I want and not have to worry about whether I'm going to be assaulted. And so we clearly aren't doing something right. <laughs> when I talk to my students, I'm like, you need to stop and think about how you're raising your kids right? to, to be able to express those. And it's when your daughters are angry, what are you angry about? Um, but girls often are socialized to be nice and nice is not angry. And that's sometimes where you get this indirect aggression so that I can express it, but in ways that are socially acceptable. And then boys are also expressing things in socially acceptable ways by turning their sadness, turning their grief, turning those other things into anger. And so until we we really look at that socialization process and, and, and who benefits from it, then, you know, we're all going to be stifled in some ways. We know that uh, we want to have more positive than negative emotions, but negative emotions can be good. And we need, people have the right to feel that, um, feel a sense of injustice. And just thinking about how we dismiss other people's um, anger is, is really fun that women, you should smile. You should not be angry. Um, men, you should, and you should be angry, but you know, the angry young man, I mean, that whole trope is like the angry young man is going to like change the world. The angry woman probably has PMS, right? <laughs> and when women, so women, when they are angry, right, there's something about, it must be the hormones. So <laughs> that is perfect. I love it. Chris, thank you so, so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. This has been fascinating. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Always love talking about the patriarchy. All right, Ryan, we're going to take a couple questions from TikTok here. Yes, so, let's do it. I'm excited. First one we have is asking about passive aggressive people. 
So holding on to boundaries, how do we handle those and how to not resort to the same tactics and peaceful resolutions? So what can people do to combat that? Yeah, so that's a great question. Let, let's start with what aggression is and therefore what passive aggression is. So, right, so aggression is, uh, it's typically we think of it as a behavior where there's this intent to harm someone or something. And it can be both, you know, physical or verbal. So sometimes we talk about physical aggression, sometimes we talk about verbal aggression. It can also be direct or indirect. And so uh, direct aggression would be, you know, actually like hitting someone or calling someone, uh, you know, a nasty name or saying something hurtful to someone, right? So that's uh, direct aggression, um, verbal or physical. And then the, what we call indirect, or sometimes in this case, we're calling passive aggression is when we are essentially expressing that ag aggression, but in a indirect way. Um, so examples of, of passive aggression um, could be things like um, spreading rumors about someone might be a way of, that might be an example of verbal indirect uh, aggression um, where you're spreading rumors about someone. Um, but we see that the really interesting thing about passive aggression is um, this was actually something, I don't think a, a lot of people know this, but this was something that was in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders for a very, very long time. Um, in fact, it wasn't removed until the early 90s with uh, the DSM-4. It was actually in the, the DSM-3 and then the DSM-3R uh, called passive aggressive personality disorder. Sometimes people refer to it as negativistic uh, disorder. Um, but Negativistic it's, disorder. Yes, it's a weird name, much like other weird names. And actually, we'll be honest and say I don't remember where it is often called that. I don't remember if that's actually its name in a previous DSM or not, um, but it was taken out of the DSM-3 and in the DSM-4 they have, and you probably remember this from when we, when you took abnormal psych, there's like a section in the DSM called uh, disorders for future research or something like that. Okay. And it was placed in that section of the DSM-4 basically saying, hey, we got to, we need to know more, right? This, we do, I don't know if this is a personality disorder, so we need people to research it. And then when the DSM-5 came out, it was just gone. So it's, it's nowhere to be found. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean, yeah, and that doesn't mean passive aggression doesn't exist. It means that the personality disorder doesn't exist, right? It means that it, it isn't necessarily a personality trait, but mm -hmm. certainly people can be passive aggressive um, and, uh, and can behave that way. And so really one of the reasons I brought this up is because I wanted to talk through sort of what are some of the criteria there? What are some of the common behaviors or, or what we'd call symptoms of this. Um, yeah. So here's something. What type of, go for it. I was gonna say, what type of people, yeah, would you consider passive aggressive? What does that look like? Yeah, so um, this is how it's described, just to give people a framework here. It's a pervasive pattern of passive resistance to demands for adequate social and occupational performance. That sounds simple, right? <laughs> Not at all complicated. Right, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> the DSM always has a habit of making easy things more complicated than they have to be. 
But some examples that they use are things like procrastinating, but intentionally procrastinating, right? So um, putting things off that need to be done and then intentionally failing to meet deadlines, um, uh, becoming sulky or irritable or argumentative when asked to do things they don't want to do. Um, uh, let's see, my favorite of these, one of the symptoms is avoids obligations by claiming to have forgotten and forgotten is literally in quotes in the criteria. So, so, so there's like a, I think whoever wrote this had a little bit of, of attitude when they wrote it. But, but that's, ultimately, like it. that's ultimately what we're talking about. Are these, this intentional um, like failing or refusing to, to meet deadlines, that sort of thing. Do you have another question you want to ask? I was trying to think and then my brain went blank. I wanted to try to lead it back into the gender roles. Right. So now that we know about this passive aggressive personality disorder, what about the anger regulation expression disorder? Because that you have in your book. You talk yeah. a little bit about that in there. Yeah, so anger regulation expression disorder is, is something that isn't yet in the DSM and frankly probably will never be in the DSM, but it's been proposed as a, as a possible um, uh, diagnosis. And one of the things I really like about it is that unlike anything that's currently in the DSM, this actually captures um, uh, passive aggression. It, it actually has symptoms listed in it about, um, you know, basically expressing your anger in an indirect way. So not by hitting someone, not by yelling at people, but by getting revenge this way, by, um, you know, in this indirect way. And you know it's it's relevant. We heard Dr. Smith talk about this a little bit briefly in the interview when she she mentioned this. Um, she, she talked about sort of girls and women being taught that they need to be nice, that they can't mm -hmm. uh, express their anger directly, and so then taking it and sort of turning it backwards or turning it around and being um, more passive aggressive. Now there is some research that suggests that girls and women are more likely to. Um, to express anger in that way, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that less likely to be direct. I think like anything in psychology, and you know this, that there's what we call within group differences are greater than between group differences, meaning, um, you know, we're going to see a lot of variance in how girls and women express their anger. We're going to see a lot of variance in how boys and men express them. Or should we, do we have any other, oh, the person had questions. I think so. The person had questions about boundaries, right? Something like that? Oh yeah, we did not touch on that, but they did ask. They were asking, how can we set up boundaries with people that are passive aggressive in our lives? Yeah, it, you know, I will admit that I, my bias is always for in these types of situations to gravitate towards direct conversations. Um, if, if you work with someone or are friends with someone or uh, are, are family with someone who you find to behave in a passive aggressive way um, and it's troubling to you, I think having direct conversations with them, one, because it's modeling the kind of direct communication you want, but also because it's a way of sort of cutting to the, to the chase a little bit and saying, okay, uh, you know, I have noticed that you have a tendency to do this and it feels to me very passive aggressive. And so let's, if you are upset with me, if you are angry with me, could you please direct 
you know, let me know more directly. And once you've had that, yeah. un- once you've had that very uncomfortable conversation, which is, it's going to be uncomfortable, right? But it gives you the opportunity to revisit it at times when, if they do it again, right? And to say, is this an instance where you might be being, you know, we, we've talked about this or something like that. And, and it gives you that opportunity to come back to it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to be direct to combat that passive aggressiveness. Because if you don't and you just are trying to be subtle about it, then you're fighting passive aggressiveness with more passive aggressiveness. And that's just going to lead to no one saying how they really feel. So although it might be uncomfortable, the first step is to have that uncomfortable conversation. Yes, I I absolutely agree. I think it's, it's, it's a good way to move forward. Anything else before we wrap up, Sammy? Um, I don't think so. So I want to hear your questions as well. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Uh, You can follow me at Anger Professor, and I want to hear your anger questions. Why We Get Mad is a special series from Psychology and Stuff and a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek. Our sound engineer for this episode is Sarah Miller, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Bleese. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Chris Smith. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwpb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with Samuel Trefeser. Keep being amazing.